0: My name is Lex Dad and I'm a local Darug man. We share country up here in the Blue Mountains with the Gundangra people. I'd like to pay respects to our elders, both past and present. I'd like to pay respects to our young people who are our emerging elders. I'd like to pay respects to Pema Wiyanga, Mother Earth, and Father Sky, Biami. And I say in our link, local Darug language, Wadami Welcome friends to Darug country and Yanana Budrigumara. May we all walk with good spirit, with patience, humility and respect from one another. Did you record her And thank you. Hey. You're listening to Paperback Writer. It's twelve fifteen on a glorious sunny day in the Blue Mountains. Um, we don't have Catherine here today, but we've got an extra special guest in the shape of Barbara Lapani. Um, Barbara is uh, a very busy person in the mountains, doing lots and lots of different things. Um, one of the main things we want to talk to Barbara about today, though, um, is uh, her memoir um, that she has written. Um, we actually had an author talk on the weekend. That in our bookshop in Hazelbrook with Barbara, which was um, very well attended and very, the audience were very engaged in it as well. Um, but we're also going to talk to Barbara uh, about a few other things that she's involved in uh, as well, particularly the Regenesis project, um, which is still an ongoing project. Um, and we've had quite a bit to do with that through the bookshop and through the, uh, uh, the Regenesis competition that we ran. And uh, in about 45 minutes' time or so, we're actually going to have the winner of the artwork competition, um, of the the Regenesis competition coming onto the sh- the show, Melissa Chambers, which I think will be great as well. So um, it's a bit of a Regenesis show today. Um, so Barbara, welcome.
1: Yeah, hi, Dak.
0: Thanks for being here. Um have just come a little bit closer. Yeah, my
1: pleasure. Yep,
0: cool. Um, how are you today?
1: I'm good. Yeah, it's yeah. nice to see the wind drop just a little and the <laughs> sun out. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty windy.
0: It's glorious out there at the moment. Yeah, um, beautiful temperatures. Just a little bit of chill in the air, but um beautiful and sunny um so you uh, wrote a memoir. When did you write this memoir, by
1: the way? I wrote it during the COVID lockdown. Okay. So, in fact, I I didn't even experience COVID as a stressful time, so I was completely <laughs> engaged in writing in, and, you know, and, and producing this book through the Amazon system. So, yeah, of course, wow. you know, it required – I didn't have anyone else to pay to proofread it or do the editing because, you know, I'm completely broke yep. living on the old-age pension. So <laughs> sure. I had to do all of these steps myself. Yeah. So, you know, that required a lot of reworking – reworking, reworking as I found a way to tell that story.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Well, you did a very good job. Now, the book is called Call of the Dakini. Um, Dakini, what what is that exactly?
1: Yeah, well, it really reflects um, the last 35 or more years of my life. I've been a student practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And the Dakini is a feminine principle of um, dynamic awareness. So it points to an inner quality of awareness that you develop through meditation, but and and it, it's it's feminised in the because it's mythopoetic storytelling in Tibetan Buddhism. Okay. So all these ideas are given a poetic sort of mythic form. Mm. That's why you have many many deities in the Tibetan tradition. But the deities aren't gods floating around in space. They're just expressions of ideas particularly sort of different aspects of wisdom so the dakini like in tibetan language it's called khandro which means moving through space okay and it's represented as a dancing female figure with her heel tucked up against her vulva so one of the things about the tibetan tradition is it's it's even though you know you had this hugely monastic population Mm. it's very at ease with sexuality and the sort of Expression of sexuality Mm. and imagery. So you see a lot of these yub-yum images of seemingly people in sexual embrace. Mm. But that doesn't mean they're having a good time sexually. (laughs) Mm. It's actually a way of expressing a non-dual wisdom, the indivisible unity of the feminine and masculine principle of wisdom and spaciousness. So the Dakini is this sort of wonderful... I mean, it's not gendered, even though it's shown in a female form, but it's this idea that awareness that you come through meditation is not a passive state Mm. that once you achieve that inner spacious awareness quality that's free of all that agonizing sort of thinking 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 that drives (laughs) people crazy yeah i know
0: that feeling well
1: (laughs) then that gives you a sort of panoramic awareness that's able to respond to everything right there and then so it's very dynamic it's responsive and it, it, it pays witness to what's really going on. Okay. It's not a retreat from what's going on into some quiet little meditative spaciousness. Yeah. So f- what I realised for me then, because I didn't really realise this till I was in a three-year retreat in France. <laughs> so it was in retrospect that I realised that this quality that was being deepened and developed in me through the three-year retreat yep. is, is actually what had been calling to me as a sort of inner spiritual compulsion all my life from my sort of very intellectually underprivileged Queensland childhood Mm. through all these different journeys that I track in the memoir Mm. uh, and and, and leading me to, you know, my current preoccupation with what I call the Regenesis Project.
0: Yeah, sure. And so, uh, I mean, your memoir um, is is quite – spends a lot of time talking about uh, Buddhism um, in particular. Um, How did you come across – when, what, what stage in your life did you come across the concept of Buddhism, and when did it really um, begin to mean something important to you?
1: Well, I, I think, like many Westerners, I came to Buddhism through emotional turmoil in mm-hmm. my own life, um, and so it was when it was during the breakup of of my one and only relationship with an, a person from my own culture. Yep. <laughs> because before that, I had uh, met and married my university sweetheart who came from the Trobriand Islands of Papua New Guinea. Yeah, wow. So I then spent eight years of my life living in Papua New Guinea as the wife of an indigenous man mm. during its transition to self-government and independence. So that was you know, a profoundly transformative experience. Mm. And then following that, I had a relationship with a law professor who was an Indian from Africa. Okay. And he happened to be the, cons- the advisor to the Papua New Guinea government on their independence constitution. So we met after my marriage collapsed and I think what drew us together is he'd also previously been married to a Swedish woman so we were sort of both survivors of cross-cultural marriages. And then because he did a lot of consulting work in the Pacific as a constitutional lawyer, he worked on Vanuatu, Solomon Islands and he worked on Fiji on some of their problems. He was constantly passing backwards and forwards through Australia Mm. and then I would also go visit him. So we had this sort of 10-year long-distance romance that yep. kept me going during those years. And then I ha- had a brief romance with um, an Aboriginal elder called Jilpi Bob Randall, who I met when I was pursuing... I'd got interested in Buddhist wisdom. So I'll go back to the, how that happened. But yep. so Bin Bob came a bit later, I suppose, after the collapse of my relationship with Ian. So what brought me to Buddhism was an interest in Buddhism, because it's, you know, like for people who are spiritually inclined but find Christian religion a bit off-putting mm. because of all the ideological baggage that goes with it, um, Buddhism's quite attractive because it's very rational. Mm. It doesn't require you to believe an external God. Yeah, It's all about how you work with your own mind and your own spirit. So that's very appealing to someone like myself. So I first met it through a guy I met at, Learning shiatsu massage, who was a had previously been a monk in the Thai forest tradition. Yeah, wow. And that's the sort of theravadan Buddhism that's in Thailand. So he took me to an inside meditation retreat. So I sort of got a bit interested in it then, but I was still in the middle of all this emotional turmoil, and it was really only after my relationship with Ian completely broke down. And then my whole life unraveled that then someone told me about this Tibetan lama giving a talk at the University of Wollongong. Mm-hmm. And I went along to that. And he was funny and earthy and very engaging. And I thought, yeah, this is who I've been looking for. Because by then I realized I was actually on a spiritual journey, not an intellectual journey, and I couldn't read my way yeah. to it. Yeah, I had to sort of learn how to get out of my intellectualising mind to access a different way of knowing. Yep. And that required a spiritual teacher who can challenge you and break, break through that sort of bubble that you've created around yourself as your way of negotiating the world.
0: Sure. So, I mean, we'll come back to that in a minute, meeting this, um, this monk in Wollongong. But um, did you come from a religious background or, I mean, uh, an intellectual atheist kind of background no
1: well my parents my father's catholic and Mm. my mother's anglican and they married in the anglican church so religion was a very tense and (laughs) difficult topic in our house so although we went to the church of england as kids Mm. none of it made any sense to me at all and the whole atmosphere in the house was very sort of tense around religion so that completely put me off um organized religion yeah and, and and also our house was completely anti-intellectual. There wasn't a book in the house.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. I had
1: no library in my primary school. Had no yep. library in my secondary school. I mean, I grew up in Queensland during the Belke Peterson years. Mm. You know, it was yep. an intellectual Enough
0: desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, and so we fast forward back to University of Wollongong and you've gone to, what was the name of this monk?
1: Uh, he's not a monk. He's a, what's called a tuku or a, okay. um, so a Rinpoche, which just sort of literally means precious one, but yep. it means a, a high-ranking lama. A lama means a spiritual teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And his name's Sogyal Rinpoche, okay. and he, that was in 1985. So it was his first ever visit to Australia. Wow! So some students had met him overseas and invited him to come to Australia. I mean, he he left Tibet when he was 12, grew up in Sikkim, and then won a scholarship to study at Cambridge University, where he studied comparative religion. Yeah. So he was he was totally fluent in the English language, and he also knew how to draw comparisons between Tibetan Buddhism and and Christian religion. So it was really helpful in sort of understanding what he was talking about because they're sort of quite complex ideas. Because mm, mm. Tibetan Buddhism is a sort of bridge between religion and psychology. Mm. So he was fantastically helpful because he could articulate clearly in my own language what, what all this meant.
0: Yeah, that makes you sense. Know. Yeah. Would you, uh, would you say there's elements of philosophy within Buddhism? Oh, as yeah. Well?
1: Buddhism's got an extremely elaborate and developed school of philosophy yeah, yeah. which comes from India. In fact, one of my great criticisms of the Western cultural tradition is if you can go to a university like Sydney and in this age of globalism, when you study philosophy in the University of Sydney, you study only the Western canon. Mm. And if you want to learn about philosophy and other traditions like... Middle Eastern philosophy or Buddhist philosophy, you'd study that in anthropology. Mm, Okay. You know, (laughs) it's just crazy because, you know, the Western philosophical canon is just one small slice Mm. of the world's attempts to understand the the meaning of reality and how to know about it.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, So I guess, I mean, your background anyway, you've had a bit of uh, a variety of interactions with different cultures and um, living in different places. Um, how has that uh, reflected your view of the world now, I guess? The fact that uh, you, you're you practicing Buddhas now, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. So you've had experience of um, living with different cultures and the like. So how do you see Buddhism being able to be applied in a country like Australia, which doesn't really, I mean, it does have a... A small tradition of um, Buddhist belief going back a while, but it's still a fairly small.
1: Oh, yeah, it's very small. Yeah, and I mean, really, if you look at the whole transition of of translation of Buddhism to the West, Mm. you know, which came to America and Europe, it's mostly sort of well-educated middle-class Westerners who engage in Buddhism, (laughs) uh, who are drawn to it because they're either interested in it intellectually, or they're troubled by their emotions and and um, And they want to understand how to how to better understand their mind and their emotions, and of course, because of that Buddhism some aspects of Buddhism, like mindfulness practice, has mm-hmm. now become completely mainstreamed into modern psychotherapy yeah, and sure. psychology. so the spiritual aspects of Buddhism sometimes get a bit lost in that, you know that it 's more than simply mindfulness and being calm
0: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> and and that which is a pity but uh, uh so where i think i mean int- what's interesting for me about the buddhist tradition in the tibetan version is i i guess when i lived when i married into papua new guinea culture and lived there i was still operating f- from a western framework yeah. i was all about bringing development to the third world yeah and uh, but i was a bit challenged because i married into a local culture that was still intact, like Tribune Island culture. And my father-in-law, he was like his... My husband would tell me he had magic. And so I was trying to work out, well, is this magic real or isn't it real or what's going Mm. on here? And slowly I came to understand that actually... What I'd learned at university—that reality is socially constructed—is mm-hmm. actually true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that these people I was living among actually lived in a parallel reality to me. Yeah. That they were they were sensitive to things happening around them that I was completely um, heavy to, as my father-in-law would say to me. Mm. And but I really only began to take that on board when I was back in Australia. Yep, and and then I. I call this my journey into the epistemological (laughs) abyss because it's like, what does it mean to know? Yeah. (laughs) You know, because I'd been so heavily invested in the Western intellectual framework that this was really exciting but also very challenging. Yeah. And now, what excites me, you see, is that Australia is at this pivotal point in our history when we're being asked to embrace our ancient cultural heritage. Which is based in Aboriginal culture, which has a profoundly different way of experiencing mm. reality, mm-hmm. you know where the whole of the landscape is completely animated, mm-hmm. and where they use dream the, you know the concept of the dreaming, which is multi-layered, but it 's myth what I call mythopoetic yep, yep. it 's storytelling through imagery, which has many, many layers of meaning that you access through ceremonial um, introduction, which involves dance and storytelling and it's mysterious, it's beyond the ordinary, mm. you know, And but you, you relate to it bodily yep. and poetically, and it's, it sort of sits completely at odds with the whole sort of pragmatism and economic focus yep. of modern culture. So for me, Buddhism, what Buddhism has given me access to is that other way of knowing, yeah, wow. only encoded in a kind of Tibetan Buddhist framework. Mm. So I'll give you one example, for example... There's a rock formation here in Katoomba, which we call Boar's Head Rock, because mm-hmm. it's got a sort of look, looks like a bit of a boar's head, yep. which is a pig. Yep. And one of the Tibetan Rinpoche's that comes to visit this area, called Wandrok Rinpoche, he was visiting Narrow Neck Ridge with Auntie Carol, a local Gundangara mm-hmm. elder, yep. to show him a sacred site. She's quite close to the Tibetan community here. And when he looked across at this rock formation, it was surrounded by rainbow light. And he said, but that's Vajra Vahari. <laughs> now, Vajra Vahari is, again, um, an expression of this dynamic Dakini principle. Okay. And it's core to my own personal practice.
0: What, what was the word again?
1: Um, Vajra Vahari.
0: Vajra Vahari, okay.
1: So, so, like, to me it was just like, how exciting. There's yeah. Vajra Vahari just down the road from me. <laughs> and, and Vajra Vahari is part of you know, like the Three Sisters, the rock formation, mm. which is regarded as the eastern extension of the Seven Sisters song mm. line yep. that goes right across Australia. So when Wondra Ribashe said that to Auntie Carol, she looked at him and she said, but of course. <laughs> and yeah, it's wow. like they're different poetic ways of talking about the same thing, yep. that this idea of the landscapes charged with mystical presence and that if you're alert to it and you know the story... And you've in, you've somehow because you've got to work at it. You've got to develop a relationship with that story through your own spiritual practice. Yep, yep. Then you can be with that landscape, and it speaks to you very powerfully.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely something that uh, Western culture doesn't tend to really give much. Well, not even much credence to, but let alone forming part of the way yeah. that we view the world. So, so you credit Buddhism with really opening your eyes to... Yeah, it yeah. gave
1: me access to yeah. it because also the whole notion of invocation, we do a very famous invocation prayer called the Seven Line Prayer where you, you invoke a figure called Guru Rinpoche who's the foundation mystic. Yeah to become more and more present in you and you become one with that. And then I realised that that's exactly what Aboriginal people do in ceremony when they become their totem. They invoke it through dance and you can see, like before them, them becoming that expression of spiritual power. Well, we learn how to do that in Tibetan Buddhism as well.
0: Yeah, there you go. Hello and welcome back to Paperback Writer. Uh, this is Zach. Uh, the time's about 12.43 at the moment and i have also joined by Barbara Lapani who's been here telling us about her memoir Call of the Dakini um, and much more than that talking about um, Buddhism and um, uh, its relation to uh, Australian Indigenous culture as well. Um, do you maybe want to expand a little bit on that? I thought that yeah. was a really interesting point that you were well, making.
1: Well, you know, I talked to you before about how in retrospect I realised this d'Arkini had been calling to me. Mm. Well, I realised one of the things the d'Arkini called me to was to meet with uh, Jilpi Bob Randall, who's yep. an elder from the Murtadula community in from Uluru. And I met him at a at a, a workshop run by the Aboriginal uh, education group in Glebe mm-hmm. and I was in search of what is the wisdom culture yep. of of um, Aboriginal Australia that could speak to what I was understanding in Aboriginal, sorry, in uh, Buddhism culture. So Bob and I then ended up working together for a year on his book, on, on his autobiography, which was published as Songman. And the reason we could speak to one another is because we were both coming from that inner spiritual experience, mm. you see. Yeah. And that and and where it was different and where there were similarities, and because in the Tibetan tradition, when you receive high teachings, you you have to go through an initiation ceremony which involves uh, certain vows of secrecy, mm-hmm. so that you don't talk about something to others who haven't received that teaching. Sure, because it's and Bob explained this in a really beautiful way when I asked him, well, why why is there such secrecy around Aboriginal spiritual knowledge? Mm even to the point where people got punished by death if they broke that secrecy in traditional culture. That's a good question. And he said, well, he said, because it's not something you're meant to talk about as if it's gossip. He said it's meant to change your very way of being. So you hold it deep inside. Mm, Okay. And you only share it with people who've received the same... Knowledge through ceremony, yep. and that's exactly the same as the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Yep, yep. So we could kind of communicate on that level, mm. even though the, the the teachings are different. Mm. But the other thing Bob also made me realize is that the, you know, because I kept probing what was the na- what was the quality of mind that underpinned uh, the sort of Aboriginal wisdom experience, and it was like, it's an inner intuitive awareness that gives them a sort of panoramic awareness. Mm. Like Bob said he couldn't believe that white fellas couldn't see what was in front of their noses when they <laughs> walked in country. Yeah. You know, he <laughs> had like, he had 180-degree vision and he was constantly, and he said, you know, we need to be like the spider when he's in his web. He can feel all the vibrations.
0: Yeah. Reaching like
1: out, what's good for you, what's bad for you. You know, we need to live like that. As We need to feel those vibrations.
0: Well, if I remember correctly, someone at your author talk on the weekend um, asked a question and kind of alluded to that experience themselves that they felt when they were uh, out in the country somewhere and there were trees being felled uh, a bit further away um, and they almost kind of felt that experience through being out in the bush and being out in the land, which they hadn't, as an experience they hadn't really had before in the city. Yeah. Uh, Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, it's
1: a sensibility. Yeah. And it it, and it's interesting because it's it's related to the quality of just being quietening your mind down and listening rather than thinking all the time because all of that thinking all the time gets in the way. (laughs) But resting in that meditative awareness doesn't stop you thinking. Yeah. But it just gives you a different space from which thought can arise that's not full of agonizing. Trouble stuff, you know yep. what I mean, and 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 that's what I saw. This that intuitive awareness that enables Aboriginal people to hear country talking to them yep. is strongly developed. I mean that Aboriginal elder that got elder of the year, Rose Ongamateer. She talked about it as daddery, mm-hmm. you know, the quiet inner listening. Yeah. So yep. I think it's such an important quality to develop that's free of religious dogma. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah, I could see that, that doing a lot of good for the world. People, more people adopting that philosophy, I think. Um, and uh, how have have these experiences uh, related to uh, what you're calling the Regenesis project that you're working on at the moment?
1: Well, yeah, well, what's happened then is I thought, you know, if, if you have this awareness quality, well, mm-hmm. well, what's the world telling you right now? Yep. And I mean, to me, we're being provoked by several things at once. Of course, climate change is top of it. Yep. So the earth's now speaking back to us in very loud language. Mm-hmm. So the whole sort of feller idea of continuous economic growth and digging up minerals and Extracting wealth from the third world and making ourselves rich through materialism is all coming to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. You know, people are ravaged by floods and fires. You can't. There was a lot of denial at first, but it can't be denied anymore. Yeah. Right. So the earth talking. Still a few people
0: trying to deny. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> because it's hard to
1: give up this kind of very comfortable materials world, and also the Western belief that we were the triumph of Western civilization yeah, is yeah. that we had the secret yeah. to continuous economic. Growth and well-being through materialism, yep. and 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 that's why I think people are now profoundly unsettled. So the other thing that speaks to me about regenesis is when you see more than fifty percent of your population are suffering from anxiety and depression. Mm. That is not an individual mental health problem that can be solved by psychiatry. Yeah, that is a profound spiritual cultural crisis. Yeah, that's a
0: significant that, number,
1: <laughs> which can only be solved by coming up with a different story. Yeah. But that gives meaning and purpose to life that isn't the story of materialism and consumerism and continuous growth of economic wealth and distraction by travelling around the world as a tourist or mm. renovating your bathroom every two years. You know, all of that way that that we've come to live our lives. Yep. And people, people can sense it. Yep. As I said to you, the Scanlon report on social cohesion is showing that all of that's falling apart at the moment and we see it happening in America and people are scared,
0: yeah, sure. rightly so. Yep.
1: So to me, and then of course the third thing is we're at this pivotal point in Australian history, we're being asked to respond to the Uluru Statement from the heart. Yep. Yep. And Absolutely. finally we've got a government who can respond to that. And mm. We've got enough Indigenous people in Parliament mm-hmm. to lead it. Yep. And that, if we are truly to embrace our ancient cultural heritage of more than 65,000 years... As as the basis of Australian identity, then that means we white fellas have to get outside the boundaries of our own story, and it's a seismic shift in the way we make sense of the world around us. And yeah. so that's that's what the Regenesis Project is about.
0: Nice. And as um, you can
1: see, I'm very excited, very about
0: passionate it. about it too, which is good <laughs> yeah. to see. So just on a on a practical basis, so what is what is Regenesis? mean in terms of um projects that you're actively working on or have worked on
1: well i just look for at the moment you know i'm a sociologist by profession in fact you know in technological innovation of all things but i now i'm running an arts organization the blue mountains creative arts network i mean as a volunteer i'm just the president Sure, but i'm working now i find myself working with creatives and so what inspires me is it's the arts that kept the Indigenous knowledge systems alive through their song lines. Yeah, sure. So, so they played a profound role in keeping that knowledge system alive despite the impact of Western colonialism. Yeah. So can we use the arts now to tell the new story? Okay. Right? Yeah. So then I look for different ways. So one project I did with you was mm-hmm. sort of getting writers and poets and people to do a little anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, I then worked with Liz Bastian, who runs the Planetary Health Initiative for Council. So I say to Liz, look, how can we amplify this story? Because the predominant way people go about it, which is a Western way, is pragmatism. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we change our land practices? How do we change our waste management practices? You know, all that practical stuff, which is very, very important. Mm. But it doesn't answer this deep psycho-spiritual dimension that's that's feeding into all this mental health problem.
0: Yeah, sure. That's
1: not solved by recycling your rubbish or putting solar panels on your roof, you know? Like all of that has to happen, but it's not enough. Yeah. So that's where I think the arts can play a role and I just keep looking for opportunities wherever I can <laughs> because I, you know, not being an artist myself and I think I was telling you I'm really excited by the work of a performance dance company called Marugeku. Yeah. And which is led by Rachel Swain, who's a white fella, I'm originally from New Zealand, and an Aboriginal woman, uh, Delisa Pegram from Mm -hmm. Broome, and they've been doing this intercultural work. And what makes it available to me is that Rachel Swain is a writer. Mm. So she's written it up in her book, Dance on Contested Land, and explaining that whole world that she's been through in learning what this is about. So for me, it's now, well... Indigenous people are only 3% of the country, population wise, Mm. and white fellas, the Anglo Celtics, are 58% of the population, Mm. and then other Europeans you added to it is another 18%. So 76% of the population carry the Western triumph of Western civilization story. Yeah, sure. We cannot expect the 3%. To hold us by the hand and teach us what their culture's about. Yep. They get overwhelmed yep, right by enough. demand. Mm. So so me now with Regenesis, how do we white fellas go on this story ourselves? Yeah, wow. Without without appropriating Aboriginal culture, yep. without ignoring the protocols that govern the use of knowledge in that culture, but finding our own pathway to it as the dominant cultural story of this land through our bureaucratic legal institutional systems yeah so that's that's what i'm on about
0: <laughs> yeah it's amazing um it sounds like a very interesting and exciting project um if people are listening to this and they want to be involved somehow in the regenesis project how do they go about doing that and are you looking for anything in particular for well, people to help i out? mean
1: as i say with bm you know i'm my job is to support other people's mm. creative projects or pull people together. Yeah. So I'm always looking for people who are interested in this story and how to support their project or build them into something that's a bigger project. Yeah. So if you're interested in the ideas and you want to talk to me, send me an email it's the best. Okay. Lapani at gmail.com. Okay, that's a pretty
0: easy one to remember. Barbara.Lapani at gmail.com. And
1: Lapani spelled L E P A N I.
0: And there's also some information on the BMCAN website. That's right. And you it. can
1: also go to my blog, which is called, uh, which is on Regenesis, R E G E N, dot
0: I had to do that a few times when I was putting the anthology yeah. together. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and regenesis is all about why it's called regenesis mm. is because Genesis, which is the story, the origin story of creation, yep. is in the Old Testament where God gave man dominion over the earth and all its life forms and restricted soul to humans. So regenesis is the retelling of that story yep. in a different to, to incorporate an animated, a totally animated world.
0: Yep. Beautiful. I like the sound of that. Um, we're almost out of time, but before we go, um, you're also involved with a new organisation called the Arts and Cultural Alliance Blue Mountains.
1: Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, this is my attempt wearing my old, you know, working in the government hat that that the the arts scene in the mountains is extremely fragmented. So the only way you've got any power in in in, uh, in, in supporting your causes to come together with you know the union movement showed that Mm. so i then reached out through our local member trish doyle and susan templeman our federal member have helped to bring them all together to form an alliance so we had one meeting we've had two meetings and at the second meeting they all agreed to form the alliance Mm -hmm. and we put in a submission to the national cultural policy and we've had a meeting with uh, John Graham, MLC, who's the new Shadow Minister for the Arts in the Nighttime Economy. Yep. So going up to the March New South Wales election, I, I want the, to work with the Alliance to pull together, well, okay, what do we want for the Blue Mountains? Mm. What's our pitch? Yep. So that's work in progress. More money. Well, the as trouble a, as is... As a start. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is at the moment, Zach, and I mean, you'd appreciate this, is given... The amount of demands on the government budget for yeah. just infrastructure repair yeah
0: absolutely uh, yeah.
1: there's and the cost of re, re you know, new the entire electricity grid yeah. there is no, there 's going to be very little money for the arts, so what do we do in the face of that yeah that's that 's the challenge all
0: right, that sounds like a, a, a an important challenge to address, and um, again, if anyone has any ideas on how to solve that particular problem get in touch with Barbara Um, or if you're interested in the Regenesis project as well it was barbara.lapani at gmail.com cool excellent thank you so much Barbara for being on Paperback Writer with us today Uh, well thanks
1: Zach. delight speaking with you